Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today, especially because Robbie is back in action. Feeling a lot better. Uh, it wasn't COVID. Uh, I, I know COVID's wanted a second date with me for a while now, <laughs> but uh, absolutely not. So today we'll get into the juror's verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation suit. And also Dr. Anthony Fauci says he will step down in 2024 no matter who is in office. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But before we discuss all of that, we have some updates for you from Uvalde, Texas. New information reveals that slain teacher Eva Morales spoke on the phone with her husband, Ruben Ruiz, an officer with the school district, during the 78-minute period when police were outside and the shooter remained with victims inside the joint classrooms. It is unclear what was said during this call and if Morales' husband notified police chief Peter Arandondo that his wife and potentially others were still alive and in need of life-saving attention. According to the New York Times, Officer Ruiz was prohibited by other officers from entering the building. The Morales phone call was among several new details about the case. Bree and Kim noted yesterday that what the police initially said about a Robb Elementary teacher leaving one of the doors to the school building propped open was false. We can confirm now, per the New York Times, that the door in question was closed but not locked as it should have been. It's still unclear why the door was unlocked. Mm. We also know a little bit more about the shooter's connection to the school. According to a top teachers union official, Ramos's 66-year-old grandmother, Celia Martinez-Gonzalez, used to work at Robb Elementary School. Before killing 19 children and two teachers, Ramos shot his grandmother in the face. We do know that she survived the attack. And video is currently circulating from a Uvalde resident who captured audio on Facebook Live of an apparent radio call of a child saying they'd been shot, but it's unclear by who. Before we listen to that video, it can be hard to watch, so be warned about that. And now let's take a look. Let me see. Are you injured? Oh my God! Where? Oh, shot a kid? Where? 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 And so we've also learned that Peter Arredondo, who's the Uvalde police, uh, who was supervising, who was on the site, uh, ultimately responsible, from what we can tell, for the decision not to go in much sooner, was also elected to local office, mm-hmm. I believe, to the city council. Mm-hmm. Just sworn in in the last couple of days, right? Right. They, uh, they skipped the ceremony for <laughs> obvious uh, reasons. It's like there is no bottom to this story. It just keeps getting more horrifying. It really does feel that way. Every day or so, it feels like someone puts out a new timeline or a you know, list of all right. of the ways that things could have gone better, uh, different points of intervention that would have improved the situation. And it just keeps getting added to and added to. And with the news, over the last couple of days that the police are no longer cooperating with the investigation, yes. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that bottomless pit is going to find a bottom. Right. They're again. not cooperating because they know they done screwed up. Yeah. They know they did it wrong, so yeah. they have no reason to cooperate from their standpoint. They're yeah. going to stonewall and prevent it from, they're going to try to deny responsibility, uh, try to not be held accountable for as long as possible, which is something the police have up. 
vast ability to do because of um, uh, uh, qual uh, qualified immunity, uh, the protection from unions, and, and, and often they have the public sentiment on their side, although no one can look at this and say this was remotely acceptable. Well, this is the question. Will this manifest in broader conversations about the utility of, of qualified immunity? Because so many people have pointed out that this isn't necessarily the police acting in an aberrant fashion. It's just very visible. And the underlying crime is so horrific that people are inclined to sympathize more with the victims than they might in a different kind of shooting, you know, a gang violence case or something of that nature. Right. Qualified immunity for any of our, our viewers who don't know what that is. It's a general protection for the police that makes it very hard if you're wronged by a police officer. It, unlike anyone else, it is very hard to sue that person for that wrongdoing. You, you have to sue the sort of the entire yeah. police agency. You can't yeah. hold that one specific officer accountable. Yeah, and in the same way that you have to get basically the government's permission to sue the government, there are these, right. these, these judges, you know, there are these narrow exceptions where you cannot sue, and there are implications for the ability to hold people responsible. Ironically, one of the issues that we're also confronting here is the fact that gun manufacturers are not generally liable for creating weapons of mass destruction and that are designed to cause harm, in many cases designed not necessarily for hunting purposes, but for the kind of um, battle context that the average person is not going to see domestically. And yet, except for some rare cases, most notably this uh, lawsuit in um, February, the settlement that was won by the Sandy Hook victims, they have been free from being held responsible for putting these things out into the public, even implementing certain kind of safety measures that would have improved their, their guns and made it more difficult for them to be used in these kind of situations. But let's see if that changes as well in the wake of this tragedy. Well, CNN's reporter on the ground, Shimon, and I don't know how to say his last name, I think it's Procupes, and he's been doing a terrific job uh, grilling the police officials who have been, who have been answering questions uh, on the ground in Uvalde. So he uh, confronted uh, Peter, uh, Pedro Arredondo, who DPS has identified as the one who gave the quote-unquote wrong directive of treating the situation as a barricaded subject rather than an active shooter delaying the response. Let's listen to that. Your decision and what the DPS director How's it going? Good, I'm Pete. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I want to talk to you about the decision and what department we're doing, but just to let y'all know, and I just spoke with I know you did, but you're not blocking me, are you? No, no, no. No, no, no. Turn this way. No, just so y'all know. Just so you all know, obviously, we're not going to release anything. We have people in our community being buried, so we're going to be respectful. I just want your reaction to the director McGraw saying that you were responsible for the decision right. we're to go into be, that room. How do you explain yourself be, to the We're going to be respectful to the family. I understand and, that, and, but you have an opportunity going, oh, and sure, and we're, to explain and we're gonna, yourself to the parents. And just so you know, we're going we're gonna to do that eventually, obviously. When? And whenever this is done and let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. And just so, we have, just so everybody, and just so everybody, just so everybody knows, we've been in contact with DPS every day. Just so you all know. They say, you're every not, day. they say that you're not cooperating. I've, I've been on the phone with them every day. Just they so say you you're not cooperating. So can, just, just two just, seconds. Just, 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 two, just so you know, we've been talking to them every day. What, what, I, is, I your, what is your reaction Y'all have him. a good day. What is your reaction, sir? Yeah, and that's obviously what he was going to do. I mean, the, the reporter is doing the right thing and, mm -hmm. again, has been doing a really good job with the story, asking the right questions. Of course, he's not going to answer them. You know, he's going to say, make whatever excuse out. We're still, you know, burying dodge. kids. Maybe the we'd dodge. be burying fewer kids right. if he, they had entered the freaking classroom earlier. That's the whole earlier, point of but... the question. The idea that it's disrespectful for a reporter to be trying to get accountability for why those kids died. The idea that that's disrespectful yeah. to those kids' memories is a pretty interesting choice of a dodge there. Yeah, ugh.
Uh, well, the Ovalde police response has brought up the call for defunding the police. Friend of the show, Eliami Olerin, writes in Teen Vogue, there has never been a clearer demonstration of police ineptitude, dishonesty, failure, and callous disregard for our lives than what unfolded in the Ovalde, Texas shooting at Robb Elementary School. Ovalde invests nearly 40% of its annual budget in the police department and has a local SWAT team for rapid response. Students and officers are trained in preparation for possible school shootings. Uvalde's school district even has its own police department. Yet a fourth grade class was massacred while at least 19 armed officers allowed the shooter to barricade himself in a classroom, then stood out in the hallway for at least 40 minutes while students hiding in adjoining classrooms Call 911 repeatedly at least six times, begging to please send help. Honestly, but, but in the headline it, there, she said a case for defunding the police and disarming teens. But who disarms the teens if you defund the police? Well, that's I mean, that's not just a glib question. For example, we've brought it up on the show several times that the Australian stock buyback, uh, gun buyback, I keep saying that, gun buyback program um, provided, uh, you know, made some guns illegal, ones that were frequently used in these kinds of events, and then offered cash for people to turn them in themselves. So that wasn't something that involved the state knocking at your door and demanding your guns be turned in. Moreover, I think the fundamental question is why are so many teens able to access guns? Some, in some cases, not this one, teens have been underage. In some instances, they have been able to take guns that were owned by family members. I spoke to someone recently who suggested that we have a bigger conversation about guns that have fingerprinting technology so that you cannot use another person's gun. Um, obviously, we've been having a conversation about raising the, the age of gun ownership and red flag laws and other things that would prevent them from getting in the hands of teens in the first place. Um, but what certainly seems clear to a lot of people involved, I think you would agree about this, is that throwing more money at the police certainly doesn't seem to be the answer. Yeah, look, because, look I'm, I'm on the libertarian rather than the conservative side of things, so I have no uh, shortage of grievances with government employees and the state in general. I don't want to reward incompetence with more funding either. And I, I mean, with the police, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. But right, I, I would love if more police and more funding on police was was deterring crime if they were sure. out there on the streets and then people were getting into less trouble because there was a policeman on the block. Both deterring that, crime and not causing civil liberties violations to right. people who are not. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Mm -hmm. The ever-expanding police budgets, I don't know what they're going to. Maybe they're going to this the SWAT uh, <laughs> materials that are not actually being used in the situation where you need the SWAT team, a mass shooter school, but actually being used to bang down grandma's door in the middle of the night because there was some suspicion that she was smoking a little marijuana, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you will not, you, I will not be Morning. Uh, the the, uh, the we should probably def defund the Uvalde police. Seems perfectly justified uh, after this. You want you know you want competent people in yeah. these in these roles. And when they prove, as they have demonstrably proven in this case, yeah. that they did every conceivable thing wrong, uh, it really it it calls into question the whole thing. Yeah. And again, I think the point that you know, progressives are going to have to land is that this is not an anomalous situation. Mm -hmm. That people have been pointing out that this is the kind of police malfeasance that's been going on across the country. Obviously, we had the largest protest in American history two summers ago because everyone saw on camera how um, feckless uh, the police can be and the loss of human life that can occur. So we'll see where this goes. We have more coming up for you next, starting with my radar. Looking forward to that. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, the right has a free speech problem. Despite 
framing themselves as the political wing which defends the suppression of speech by liberal forces, it seems clear to me that speech is routinely compromised by people from both major political factions in the United States. Here are some examples. Can conservatives defend them? On Monday, social media freedoms would have been seriously curtailed by a Republican-backed Texas law, but for the intervention of the Supreme Court. A 5-4 decision by an ideologically mixed assortment of justice, including Amy Coney Barrett and Justice Roberts, blocked a law that would, quote, ban large social media companies from removing posts based on the views they express. On the anti-speech side, three conservative justices joined a dissent penned by Justice Alito, who said he was skeptical that social media companies have editorial discretion protected by the First Amendment, like newspapers and other traditional pub pub publishers do. That's according to reporting by the New York Times. If the Supreme Court hadn't stepped in, large sites like Facebook would have to allow all posts, an outcome analogous to the Washington Post being forced to print every op-ed submitted to its editorial board. Now, there's a good argument that since these large internet platforms are acting as publishers with editorial control, they should be liable for the content they publish the same way newspapers are. But here the issue is simply whether they have a right to editorial control. Alleged free speech advocates in the Republican Party said no, that Facebook and implicitly the New York Times should not have those editorial rights. As host of popular legal podcast 5-4 put it, so the answer to the question of how close conservatives are to completely inverting the meaning of the First Amendment and using it to bludgeon their political enemies is pretty close. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a preliminary injunction against a similar law in Florida, holding that, quote, social media platforms exercise editorial judgment that is inherent and that is inherently expressive. When platforms choose to remove users or posts, deprioritize content in viewers' feeds or search results or sanction breaches of their community standards, they engage in First Amendment protected activity. Seems like Republican lawmakers couldn't care less. Moving on, in a move straight out of 1984, Republicans have also pushed for book bans across the country, most notably Mouse, a graphic novel which portrays the horrors of the Holocaust, was removed from a Tennessee 8th grade curriculum. Why? Well, according to school board member Tony Ullman, quote, it shows people hanging. It shows them killing kids. Why does the educational system promote this kind of stuff? Well, gosh, wait till he hears about what actually happened during the Holocaust. Though one wonders how he ever will learn about those horrors if he thinks a comic book where Jews are depicted as cartoon mice is too triggering to read. And of course, there's CRT. States across the country have come between educators, local community members, and students by banning the teaching of concepts relating to race. An example, Ron DeSantis has backed two bills which ban anything that might make a student feel, quote, discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress. Whew, oh boy, I'm old enough to remember when liberals were the snowflakes. Does the fact of the founding fathers owning slaves make you uncomfortable? Well, you can simply erase it from history. Does the whole concept of American slavery chafe with your sense of national identity? Hmm, just cut it from the textbook. <laughs> And DeSantis hasn't stopped there. Last month, he signed a bill banning protests outside of any residence. So you have free speech technically, you just can't peacefully protest in public spaces where you might actually be seen by the people you're protesting. 
This, of course, was after barricades were thrown up around the Supreme Court where people initially convened to protest. DeSantis cited the vulnerability of, justice, of justices at their homes, but of course, that has never been the legal standard set forth by conservatives. Again and again, they've protected the right of protesters to protest outside of abortion clinics as long as the entrances aren't obstructed. And it's difficult to imagine a circumstance more vulnerable than an intimate medical procedure. Late last month, the AP reported that, quote, a private Christian university is considering strictly limiting the free speech rights of its students when it comes to sexuality and gender, from how they behave to what they wear and what they can say on campus or online. Now, this is far worse than right-wing panic about teachers indoctrinating youth. This is about a university openly dictating the most basic freedoms of association. And yet these restrictions on student speech rarely get an airing on the right. Jeff Bezos claims he has no editorial control at the Washington Post. But in 2015, Bloomberg reported that, quote, every two weeks, Bezos holds an hour long conference with the executives at the Washington Post. Twice a year, the managers fly to Seattle for strategy sessions with the Amazon.com founder. And every so often they find a reader complaint in their inbox forwarded from the big man himself, Jeff at Amazon.com. <laughs> now, some might draw a relationship between Bezos' Bezos's panoptic presence and the newspaper's insistence on printing editorial after editorial, saying that corporate gouging has nothing to do with inflation. Nothing to see here, folks, says the fourth biggest corporation in the country. And, latest, and the latest and perhaps most controversial example comes in the form of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp defamation trial. As you're probably aware by now, the trial arose out of an article drafted by the ACLU, published by Heard, in which she alludes to being a victim of, quote, domestic abuse. Johnny Depp was not named, but he brought suit against Heard and yesterday successfully won a multi-million dollar judgment against her. The trial revealed both Heard and Depp had behaved quite badly, with Heard coming across as not credible on the witness stand and as an instigator of physical violence herself. But even accepting all of that, the defamation suit hung on whether she was lying about being the victim of domestic abuse. And truth was a complete defense to that. Under the expansive definition of domestic abuse, it seems like it would be difficult for Depp to prove he wasn't at least somewhat emotionally or verbally abusive. Certainly text messages in which Depp said he hoped, uh, hoped Heard was, quote, a rotting corpse and called her a see you next Tuesday don't point to the healthiest of relationships, even if you grant she was overwhelmingly at fault. But perhaps because Heard's attorney emphasized less substantiated claims of physical assault that suffered from Heard's lack of credibility on the stand, the jury appears to not have considered emotional or verbal abuse as they assessed whether Depp had met his burden of proof to show that Heard acted with malice to defame him when she wrote, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. A statement so vague it would be difficult to conclusively prove as false, I would think, and many commentators thought. So, you know, what divorce doesn't feature? from some form of, quote, emotional abuse. Now, some are asking if this judgment will have a chilling effect on people making reference even vaguely to having been similarly victims of abuse for fear that they might be sued. Is that free speech? Apparently, according to the House GOP Twitter account, which posted this image right after the verdict was announced, this is a clear victory. So, what gives? 
Is the GOP, in fact, not calling balls and strikes when it comes to free speech issues, but just doing what most people do, which is depress their ideology while using the Constitution as a cover for having to defend their substantive values. In a recent viral video essay, ContraPoints argued that some conservatives know their beliefs are indefensible in the public sphere. So they pivot, pivot to defending their right to say them. Is that really what's going on here? And if not, why is there so much free speech inconsistency? So, Robbie, I appreciate that many people will disagree on the merits about how the world should look and how policy should be structured and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. But it seems to me that you could very easily make free speech arguments on both sides of a lot of these issues. So what work is the idea of free speech doing here? Is it distracting us from these underlying substantive conversations about what we want our society to look like? Mm. Well, you touched on a lot of different things here. I, I think the free speech debate is very important. I think it's uh, appalling how little uh, progressives seem to care about free speech anymore. But I agree with you that conservatives absolutely use this. What do you mean by progressives don't don't care about free speech anymore, Robbie? There is not enough uh, respect for the idea that we should be able to dissent and disagree. I mean, the transformation of the ACLU is a good example. The transformation of college campuses into safe space. Okay, maybe we're doing doing a liberal progressive semantics game here. The hard left has been better on free speech than the right. I use progressive to define that space in between moderate and the Elizabeth Warren space. I'll allow it. Okay, but I want to go to your... So on the social media front, which you started with, I completely agree with Mm -hmm. you. Um, And I've been trying to argue to conservatives and Republicans constantly that their views that social media companies need aggressive regulation and that's going to somehow help conservatives or is consistent with free speech principles. It makes no sense. It's the most self-defeating and unprincipled argument I can find. So I completely agree with you on that. On the, and we're, I think we're going to talk about the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp stuff later. Sure. So, but on the school curriculum stuff, look, I will just say this. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a free, free speech issue when, okay, look, the school, we're talking about public schools. Mm-hmm. They got to teach something. Mm-hmm. What they teach is, I think, sort of a matter of public Discussion and if they switch, you're right. If they take mouse off the curriculum because right, it they hurts think your the, fees. Sure, but if they're just in some cases they're just switching it for some other book. It's not they're not, they're not banning it. They're not removing it from the libraries. They're just saying we're going to teach some different book. No, but look at the reasons a, why they're banning mouse. Yeah. So at one there's well, a there's a there's cases. a panel for instance in mouse where a mouse. You know, a Jewish mouse is being marched into, I believe, a a gas chamber and is stripped, as is historically accurate, of his clothes, wedding bands, all of those things. That's part of the horror of what happened. To say that, I can't think of a more, you know, know, soft, easy way to depict or explain what happened in the Holocaust than to turn a human being into a mouse. I agree. I would have no problem with my kids. So it's a substantive. What I'm saying is, I think it's substantive. People don't substantively want to learn about that genocide. People don't substantively want to learn about the parts of American history that aren't so sunny. And they're using these kinds of speech is- issues to take really essential history lessons out of the curriculum. I by their own. By their I don't own. agree with that. We cover the unsavory parts of American history very, very well and very aggressively. You cannot possibly argue that the, the Civil War, the pre-Civil War slavery period, 
uh, the fact that, that it's whitewashed in American history. It's not. I don't. I don't believe that it is. Robbie, they literally couldn't even teach a book about mice dying in the Holocaust. No, because that's, that's true. They, they, the, they just changed it with a different book. And, no, here's the thing, Robbie. If you want it, if an individual teacher made that choice, if an individual yeah. school or community made that choice, that's one thing. But the very Sometimes party, they rotate out books because the, they've taught but them. But the very or, party, Robbie, that says that they are all about letting communities judge themselves and operate on their own volition are promulgating state-level laws to preemptively yeah. ban certain kinds of well, content. Right. And I, that's an issue. And I don't agree with those state-level laws. They shouldn't do it. I, right. I would solve this whole issue by just privatizing education, and then you can go to a Heart school aches. that teaches the kind of thing you like, and that way it doesn't have to be this messy national or state-level conversation dictating exactly what schools what they're supposed to teach. I agree with you there, but it's, at some level it is a, it is a public consensus decision what is going to be taught because it's a public utility. It's a public functioning thing. It's not a, it, free speech is not the right lens for it, I don't think. I think that's right. So yeah. why, again, is the question, do we keep getting everything framed as a free speech issue when people are just trying to press, what, which they're allowed to do, their personal ideologies? They don't, I, they cover <laughs> that. I, I, my worry about American history is they, they don't cover uh, they never get to like World War II and beyond in American history because they just run out of time at the end of the year. It's true. That is that is a, civil a war topic. exhaustively covered. <laughs> a topic for another day. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Bree, and we'll have more rising right after this. Depp has won his defamation case against ex-wife Amber Heard, with the jury awarding the actor. $15 million in compensatory and punitive damages. The jury also found merit in Heard's countersuit. She was awarded $2 million in compensatory damages. Heard called the verdict, quote, a setback for women and a violation of her free speech rights, telling TMZ, quote, I am sad I lost this case, but I'm sadder still that I seem to have lost a right I thought I had as an American to speak, free speak freely and openly. Columnist at the New Republic, Natalie Shore, joins us now to discuss her piece and react to the trial's conclusion. Natalie, welcome to Rising. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're critical of Evers to drag this trial into the culture war, writing in the New Republic last month, quote, Depp v. Heard isn't some referendum on Me Too, nor will it set back anyone's causes by re-unleashing some chilling threat to silence women for speaking out. This trial is just a referendum on the reputation of two rich and famous actors who treated each other jaw-droppingly terribly in the most dramatic fashion possible. So tell us more about your take here that seems to resist some of the polarization that's been happening online. Yeah, so I, I wrote this a couple weeks ago when I started to notice that a lot of the media discussion was talking about the case, uh, you know, very consciously through the lens of the Me Too movement and, and feminism itself, uh, with, you know, the broader left media uh, writing about uh, Amber Heard and the need to rally around her as a feminist imperative. Uh, if we didn't, you know, Me Too itself and, you know, the anti-abuse movement around it would, would be in jeopardy. And, you know, on the right wing, uh, I, I think that there were some uh, men's rights adjacent takes, um, some, some takes about how, you know, this this should make us rethink how we how we approach these cases. And I, I don't think that we have to look at this as if, um, you know, massive political narratives hang in the balance. I think it's a very unusual case. I think that the facts of this specific case 
do not make it a good one for a referendum on feminism. Uh, and, you know, feminism can stand without Amber Heard. <laughs> yeah, you, you pointed out in your piece, you know, a, a lot of people for watching the trial and then clearly the jury were just not uh, super impressed with the evidence that Amber Heard marshaled to support her very her very serious claims of you know, seri- of having been victim of serious violence, serious sexual assault. The, the pictures, the witness statements did not you know seem to 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 really well match the, the very serious abuse stuff she was talking about. I, I think it you know what did kind of come through is right that they had treated treated each other mutually very very awfully, and that she was engaged in some pretty awful things as well. So, so to that end, I, I guess the this finding, I, I kind of expected both of their suits to just fail, but I, the jury almost went the other way and said, well, yeah, this was a bad relationship, and the things you both said about each other were to some extent false, so we're, we're both awarding you some amount of money, though the, the, the you know, kind of pro-dep commentary is seeing this as a larger victory for him because the amount was larger. Yeah, and, and he got, you know, they found that all three of the claims that he was suing for constituted defamation, whereas only one from her countersuit was. Uh, my read on that, and it's impossible to say exactly what the jury was thinking, but I think that this would be consistent with one juror maybe being a holdout, maybe being less certain than the others, and that this was a sort of compromise verdict. Mm. Uh, that, you know, maybe maybe they, they were leaning toward her story a little more, and it does have to be unanimous. So they said, okay, one count for... Two million, and it was one that was pretty specific. That you know, a statement from his lawyer that specifically laid out the mechanism by which he believes that she lied, uh, and and I think that you know the the, the specific timeline that he offered uh, was maybe conflicted by evidence, so they felt comfortable saying, okay, this this went a bit far, two million. But yeah, ultimately, it's an eight point three five million dollar judgment for Depp. So, Natalie, I I mean, I I, so in full disclosure, I didn't really follow this case much. I mean, I understand the obsession with it. I think people were just ready for something that wasn't war and COVID and, you know, news that just is really super depressing. It's just, I guess, more fun in our daily lives to follow some sort of tabloid sort of nonsense. And that's kind of what this was. But I think there might actually be some cultural significance to this case. I mean, look, um, this now saying that Amber saying so if we take out the rich and famous part of it and just make them normal, regular people. Now, what does this what are the implications of this? If a woman says or a man, anybody says my spouse was abusive to me and they go out there and they say things, maybe they make remarks on Facebook or Twitter or they go around in their public, um, you know, in their social circles and they start saying this to the PTA meetings. I don't know where where and their book clubs, wherever people or their churches, wherever they might go. And then there, so could they then, that that be viewed as, well, you know, Amber Heard didn't get away with that. You don't have any evidence of this. This is he said, he said, she said, we were just in a bad relationship. We were both abusive to each other. That right there is a little bit dangerous, right? For, because it's putting that victim blaming. So the person who's being abused, the, they could come around and say, well, you were also abusive. You, you caused this bad relationship as well. So, I, I mean, don't you think there might be some actual sort of Me Too-ish type implications for people who want to make accusations against their spouses or their previous partners who were very abusive? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I am obviously not a lawyer. Maybe maybe Bree could speak more specifically to defamation law. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a little less 
concerned about those aspects than some other commentators seem to be. The reason being that, you know, defamation law has already existed. It predated this case. And I have no doubt that it has been, you know, used by abusers um, against people to try to, you know, punish them, drag them through the legal system. I, I'm not trying to say that that never happens. I'm sure that it happens frequently. Uh, but, you know, those those cases do still have to be meritous to move forward and to, you know, get a, a jury to to find in their favor. There does have to be a massive discovery process. A jury has to, you know, believe that it was defamatory, which is more than just untrue, more than just unfair, more than just, you know, you weren't a perfect victim, which is how people, I think, are trying to make this case. I mean, I, I think it, I think that this case in particular goes well beyond those things. Uh, it's not, it's not that Hurd's not a perfect victim. It's that there are about 10 hours of audio in which it's very clear that she starts physical fights, that she hits and punches him, that she is furious that he tries to defuse situations by walking out of them. Uh, something that, you know, no one would extend the benefit of the doubt for even a second if the if the situation was reversed. So I, I really do think right. that this is a little bit more specific to be applicable in that way. Well, Kim, I, I hear what you're saying, actually, because I do think that part of the issue here is that the, the legal standard was pretty high, so much so that even people who watched the trial and, and found uh, Amber Heard to be really low on credibility and quite, you know, not that it is as material, unlikable, um, and, so, and heard all of the evidence that Johnny Depp was oftentimes trying to de-escalate while Amber was trying to escalate. Even considering all of that, the fact that Amber Heard's initial statement in the uh, Wall Street Journal or Washington Post article was did not name Johnny Depp and simply said that she had been in an abusive relationship and that she had become notable for two years ago seemed to suggest that all that she had to prove to resist the defamation suit was that there was any abuse in her domestic situation, which seems to be a, a pretty broad and easily to, easy to meet standard, especially says to, uh, because to Kim's point, you know, a lot of people, when relationships end, it's messy, it's unpleasant, and regardless of who's in the right or wrong, people say and do things that could, I think, accurately be characterized as verbally or emotionally abusive. And what I heard from folks, and I want to know what you have to say about this, Natalie, is that from watching the trial, they think that the issue was that her legal counsel did not make the case strongly enough for emotional and verbal abuse and hit on the, that's a poor choice of words, but focused so much on the physical abuse on which, for, you know, for which she wasn't credible, that they, it was really hard for them to tie in a case to say like, well, if you find that he was at all abusive in these other ways, then you have to find for Amber Heard here. What do you make of, of that characterization of what happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that would have made sense as a legal strategy from her team. Uh, I think that they, you know, said it in closing, maybe raised it a few times, but it, it didn't feel like a unifying narrative to me. And I'm, I'm sure that you would have been better counsel for her. Uh, <laughs> but I also I also think that, you know, when they say two years ago, when she, she wrote two years ago, I became associated with uh, domestic violence or whatever the wording was, I think that she was very... Uh, I mean, not ex implicitly, clearly implicitly yeah. uh, discussing the um, restraining order 
uh, in the context of the divorce that, you know, brought her onto the cover of People magazine with pictures of uh, injuries that had allegedly been caused by Depp. Um, I, I mean, I think I think that she was referring to physical abuse, uh, original. Yeah, I, I think there's, I, I just pulled up the op-ed again. She, right. she writes in it, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. Yeah. And the headline says, I spoke up against sexual violence. And I think right, those two else, things taken together are the clearly article. implying physical rather mm-hmm. than merely emotional, psychological, Earlier, at which point all relationships that end badly then involve some Well, well that's the point. That's abuse. why it's so dangerous. So early in the article, she talks about being the, the victim of physical abuse, abuse in her by the time she went to college, I believe. So that's very clearly in a period of her life pre-Johnny Depp. So the headline, you know, for better or for worse, is referring to a whole cluster of things that she's experienced. But I think that when you read it, it does feel like it was drafted by a lawyer because the physical de- abuse is very clearly cordoned off as a separate and apart from what is being described with the two years ago Johnny Depp statement, which is much more moderate. I, domestic abuse is a phrase I think most people would associate okay, with Okay, most people is most physical. people, but this is not the standard of the law here. Well. And domestic abuse broadly defined, of course, includes physical, uh, sorry, emotional and verbal abuse. I think that would be difficult to dispute. So, you know, to Kim's point, there is this when everyone is the victim of domestic well, that's, abuse. Well, that is exactly Kim's point. Are we in a world where because you're talking to your girlfriend at the bar or your, your, your boyfriend at the bar and you say, hey, oh my gosh, Ginny was so abusive. Timothy was so abusive. I'm so glad I'm out of that. And that gets published somewhere. Are you going to be subject to being sued over that as a defamatory statement? And the fact that you subjectively believe that to be true, even if you're crazy and the instigator and a bad actor yourself, is that you're, is that characterized as maliciously published in order to cause defamation? Which again, we're talking about legal standards here, not just what's right and wrong and what we kind of feel should be the outcome based on our uh, credibility determinations or who we think came off best on the stand. Yeah, I mean, you know, in in that particular case, you know, they, they would still, like, I think that that case would probably get thrown out. Uh, you know, Jimmy would still have to prove that he was harmed by this, that it was made maliciously, that it was false. That would re- require a, a large amount, you know, obviously preponderance of the evidence isn't the, the highest standard, but I think, you know, getting to a point where you are proving actual malice, even by, by a preponderance of the evidence, I think is not necessarily easy to do. And, and to your point about, you know, uh, emotional uh, abuse, I, I do think you're right. Uh, but but I also just think that she was very clearly, you know, I, I think domestic abuse can mean lots of things. But the two years ago, she was talking about the TRO. She became a public figure associated mm-hmm. with it through that, uh, through those photos outside of the courthouse, through being on the magazine, um, you know, speaking out about sexual violence and feeling society's wrath. No one was, you know, projecting societal wrath onto this woman for saying that she was raped in high school. Like, like I, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at it, what she was trying to imply and in context and the original drafts that the ACLU helped her with, um, you know, she she did originally mention the TRO explicitly, uh, as well as her marriage. And, and, that's, so and I, that seems like a, this seems, <laughs> I mean, I might, you might all disagree with me. It, it seems like a not horrible outcome from a, a social effect that, you know, not, I, we don't want to discourage uh, victims from coming forward, but if we're just discouraging 
people in a much, much more clearly messy, equally traumatizing situation from trying to mint themselves as heroes for this cause and you know, roping in the ACLU and the Washington Post, discouraging that kind of uh, thing might be a perfectly, is in my view, probably a good development. Right. But then also, why not bring defamation charges about the statements made outside of the courtroom, et cetera? Like it or not, this, this was a specific case with a narrow purview. And the question was whether the statements made in this Washington uh, Journal uh, uh, article were, in fact, defamatory and what the implications of them being found to be defamatory, despite being relatively vague, are. It's, it's worth an ongoing conversation. I'm sure this isn't the you end said, of that. You feel like talking about this? And we could talk about this for hours, clearly, Brianna. <laughs> clearly. Unfortunately, un- unfortunately, it kind of is the end of that because now this is over. The case is done. He got well, 15 million. She said she's going to appeal. Always so. be appeals. Ah. There, there's always another Pirates movie in the, uh, in the making. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. And coming up, President Biden will announce new efforts to curb the country's baby formula crisis. We'll discuss that coming up next. Yesterday, the Biden administration confirmed that the U.S. will airlift more baby food from abroad in a last-ditch effort to halt the worsening formula shortage. The push includes new shipments from Europe and Australia. With some 380,000 pounds of Bubs Australia Infant Formula, or about 4.6 million 8-ounce bottles, set to touch down stateside next week. This comes just after President Biden, under pressure from reporters yesterday, admitted he was not briefed on the shortage until April. Oh, my God. That was real bad. Uh, it seems the president, however, still not on the same page as the rest of his staff. Here's Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yesterday. When did somebody call the White House to say this is a problem? You guys may need to get involved. So I could say that, um, again, the recall happened on the day, day one of the recall. We took action as a whole of government approach, right, with FDA, USDA, as I just laid out. Um, and the president understands, again, he understands how difficult this is. He understands uh, how challenging this is, and we have acknowledged that. Uh, he understands that this is the job of the president to be able to multitask, to get things done, uh, especially when it comes to making sure that your child gets uh, healthy, healthy food. Um, and so that is what is that is what we've been doing. When was someone called here at the White House? to say this could be an issue that requires presidential involvement. So I don't have the timeline on that. All I can tell you as a whole of government approach, we have been working on this since the recall in February. Well, he understands, Robbie. He understands. Whoever came up with this PRC deserves a huge paycheck because boy, oh boy, reporters having to work harder and harder every day to get real concrete answers out of people. Biden basically said, yeah, we didn't know it was going to be this big a problem because who knows anything about this? And they said, let let me clarify. I didn't know. (laughs) Maybe other people knew, but I didn't know. 
<laughs> yeah, it's really it's what? This should be a good moment for Joe Biden. It is a good thing that they're airlifting all of these shipments of baby formula from overseas. It's something that you were really hot to have happen immediately when this news broke. You know, I don't know if that's at the same time, by the way, that Joe Biden knew about the news right. breaking, but eventually he figured it out and here comes the baby formula. But instead it's derailed by a gaffe like this where he's, he speaks with a level of confidence that suggests he doesn't even really know that what he's saying is inappropriate. The idea that the White House didn't know when the whistleblower blew the whistle back at the end of last year, when we publicly knew about the shutdowns and experts were saying this was gonna have a trickle down effect as early as February, that he didn't realize as the, as the leader of the nation until April is a real confession of malfeasance. I, yeah, it's, real, it's really bad. Um, also, I guess policy-wise, maybe we can make this more permanent, getting some more baby formula from Europe. I, uh, a lot of emergency, um, things we do in emergencies, I sometimes think, that could just be standard practice. This was true of some of the COVID uh, stuff when they're like, well, we can't have people eating indoors now. I, I guess we'll have to convert more of our outdoor space into outdoor uh, dining areas, and I guess we'll have to let people like open carry on the streets. Great. Just do that. Just normally yeah. have that be the way it is. I think that's right. If some of the concern about... So I feel this way about drinking openly on the street. Is <laughs> look, I, I'm not going to argue with you. Let's, <laughs> let's make the whole world New Orleans. That's fine with me. But look, I, I, I do street. think that if one of the concerns was that the European baby formula wasn't labeled properly. It had, you know, a European um, metrics on it instead of American, and that can confuse parents. I would love a place where whatever situation they've worked out right now, if these European factories have a I, an American version of the PDF to print on all labels in an emergency, I think that's perfectly fine and adequate. But I think the bigger problem is why do we only have, what is it, four manufacturers in our entire country that are making formula? I don't think we should have to re rely on foreign-made formula for such an essential product in the United States of America. And what are we going to do? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was a very demonizing look, way. You just I, said foreign. <laughs> look, the reason we're having all of these inflation problems, and no one wants to talk about this yeah. aspect of it, is that to save pennies on the dollar. Corporations have decided want to move companies overseas. Everybody knows about that, but also not to store any goods on American soil. The idea it's being too expensive it's too expensive to store it. Now we have a big country and there's a lot of storage facilities, but it's really not an ultimate, I can't afford it. It's a, I don't want to eat into profits to do it. And who's paying the cost of that profit grab of that corporate greed, it's families and these babies who have gotten sick and the couple who unfortunately didn't even survive the crisis. It, but companies will always, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the way the world well, that's, works. They will that's, always that's try to true. save that's money not true. if it costs too much money to store and manufacture that's here. That's not true. They will and you always can, go elsewhere. So we can at, lower those costs by looking at the regulatory costs, mm -hmm. the labor costs, et cetera. But we're not going to do that, and so we'll never bring back manufacturing. It's, it's It'll never true. happen. It's, it's, it's only fiction. true that people who are running co companies are motivated by corporate greed exclusively. When you look at other kind of companies that are worker-owned, when you look at companies like Costco, they have chosen a different kind of model because they understand that it's more important for them to keep jobs in their communities than to earn another penny or two on dividends by sending jobs overseas. They understand that it's worth paying workers a living wage no. because they are, in it's, fact, the workers no. as opposed no. to paying no. out more dividends no. to stockholders. And you see the companies like that being very successful and having high worker productivity, high worker happiness. People stay around in those jobs and they have better work product. But we're not all workers fairly. at Costco. We're all consumers of goods and we want the price of goods to be cheaper because we're all consumers Costco's of pretty affordable. Goods. That's why people like Costco. But generally speaking, they go overseas because not just because they want to 
save money and make be wealthier for shareholders, but because they can't afford to do it here and the prices strong, are too high. Strong disagree. The we, prices are there too were, high. There were trade deals that were made in the 90s that specifically motivated these kind of behaviors by the corporate oligarchs that have continued to run this country since basically we had the collapse of unions and the, and the lack of worker power. I think there's a real crisis where we don't have a confidence in the American worker to produce things that the American worker need. It seems to me to be a rather unpatriotic stance that a lot of folks have leaned into that it's just constitutionally impossible for America to do the things that it did for the decades and decades during which America became the world superpower. And I have a little bit of more of a sanguine view about what the country is capable of. The American of. workers being outcompeted by people who produce more efficiently elsewhere, and I don't have any problem with that because we all, not just the American worker, but all of us enjoy the fruits of that labor being elsewhere in that everything is cheaper, more expensive, and we ultimately live better. Well, that's a longer conversation that we should have over some maybe very affordable cost go coffee, but up next we'll be talking say, uh, about... cocktails in the middle of the street, which we should all be allowed <laughs> to do. plan. Or baby formula or whatever. Oh, <laughs> well, up next, Dr. Anthony Fauci says he will step down from his post in 2024, no matter who is in office. That's coming up next. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he will step down from his post in 2024, no matter who the president is by then. On Wednesday, Fox News anchor Neil Cavuto asked the nation's top infectious disease expert if he would continue to serve in government if Donald Trump were reelected to the White House, to which Fauci responded, well, I'm not going to get involved in any politics about who is or is not going to be in the White House. <laughs> Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Rebecca Azar is a political journalist, and Emily Jashinsky is a culture editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. So, Emily, do you make anything of this? Is it just, you know, a man who is already in his early 80s preparing to retire no matter what at the end of the administration? Or are people really reading in to this a, a, a reluctance to get back into another Trump administration or a lack of confidence that, that Joe Biden is actually going to win in two years? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know that we can take anything Anthony Fauci says without it, just a massive grain of salt um, at this point. So whether it's about um, policy or his retirement plans, uh, I, I just have a hard time believing him. But also, um, he's set to give, actually Forbes calculated this about a year ago, he's set to get one of the biggest retirement packages, actually the biggest retirement package, according to Forbes, in American mm. history when he does retire. Something like $350,000 a year um, before th that was from the analysis about a year ago. So I don't know why he hasn't already retired. Um, and the, the last point I'll say is just that it doesn't really make a big difference if Fauci retires because um, the entire bureaucracy that he has spent decades creating and working in um, is basically made in his image. There are a million other Anthony Fauci's ready to step in and do what Anthony Fauci did. So while I think he was uniquely uh, problematic in so many different ways, I think we would pro will probably find once his time comes to an end, um, it, it will uh, th there will be other people waiting in the wings that are similar. Mm. Rebecca, it's interesting to me that, you know, Fauci started the pandemic as a kind of, for a little while at least, was a, a really a bipartisan hero, uh, just a, you know, general someone everyone was turning to for guidance and was kind of minted as, uh, as a, a new celebrity. And then as he became increasingly a, a polarized figure, uh, it was then really just a hero to Team Blue. 
Um, do, you, do you think he's still uh, viewed that way, given you know some of the, uh, I guess, frustration, uh, even I think among many liberals and Democrats, with, for instance, schools being closed so long, uh, in, in interest in lab leak and gain of function, where he's been kind of evasive. Has his star really faded somewhat, even among uh, people on that side of the political spectrum? Well, he's been in, and here's the thing, um, Dr. Fauci has been in this medical game for 38 years, right? He's been in this leadership position when it comes to um, diseases and things like that. And so when Trump administration came up, you know, Trump is uh, somebody out of Hollywood. So when he appointed him as, uh, you know, his right hand man, when it came to getting information and giving information to the American people, especially when it came to COVID, when that position opened up for Dr. Fauci, just like uh, Donald Trump, he I think he was pushed into this, uh, uh, you know, this social media star and he's just a star in this moment. But when he started to give advice that the people weren't liking and um, in the moment where people were unsure about things, people were leaning on, you know, oh, he's not saying anything that's real. He's not saying he's a professional. And people started to um, literally say that what he's what he was saying, the science wasn't actually something that was true. And I think that after 38 years, after 38 years of doing this, I think, um, you know, I don't think it should matter whether his star is, you know, not glowing anymore or whatever. He's done his time. I think that at this time, whether it's blue or red, um, which side of the coin people care about him on, he did his time. And I think that it's time to go. I don't think he really cares if he's going to get the popular vote or not. Well, correct. And to your point, Emily, you know, he is he's in his 80s. Uh, so many uh, senior kind of leaders of our government right now, are with, with, this is the oldest government we've ever had. Joe Biden, very old, even if he's replaced by Donald Trump again. Donald Trump is also up there. Nancy Pelosi, very old. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have certain certain senators who are, you know, like widely believed to be kind of senile at this point, still serving in office. We know we know who those names are. We've talked about them on the show. Uh, why don't people just retire ever anymore? This is starting to feel like a uniquely American problem or a, a problem even confined to our recent political moment that, that, I, that I'm not sure what the reason for it is. I'm not, I don't Democrats think it's, especially. It's Democrats especially. And it, do, it doesn't feel necessitated by whatever, whatever the weird dynamic of like excessive polarization or partisanship is going on. I'm not sure what that has to do with it, but it is the reality. What do you make of it? Yeah, I think Fauci is a really good example because he's set to get this massive retirement package and yet he clings on. Why? Well, I think because the power is as intoxicating as that $350,000 a year retirement package. Um, and so in, and if you look at why this phenomenon seems to be particularly pronounced on the left right now, it's because I think there are people like Nancy Pelosi, like Joe Biden, who are anxious about uh, the the sort of left wing of the Democratic Party, so like establishment Democrats, and Bernie Sanders is fairly uh, senior himself, but um, it's, it does seem to be more concentrated in the establishment, and I think they're anxious about it, and they cling to power, um, you know, first of all, because it's addicting, and even though they have tons of money, they don't need um, to make money, they don't need to continue the power, they've exerted power for years, but I think there's something uh, very much about that, and Fauci's a great example. He's in his 80s, he has plenty of money to live on, uh, but he, you know, he, he wants You're to right. be in control. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let me ask you both. It's the power more than, a, than the money sometimes. I, I do think that's the case. And in today's example of Bernie Sanders, I, I think it's interesting that from a lot of perspective, 
I think part of the issue is it's so difficult to get in, especially now when you see these very concerted campaigns being mounted by the Democratic Party against leftists. You see Bakari Seller, Seller starting a million-dollar super PAC, specifically with the goal of keeping progressives out of office, that it does feel from for progressives, once you get in there, you have to stay, because God knows we don't get another chance. Bernie Sanders has just been idling there for 40 years without anybody being able to come and join him until you know 2018. But I want to ask you both this. Should we be giving... Fauci a little bit of credit for maintaining the veneer for a, list of, a pretty long time as being fairly nonpartisan, even in the context of the end of the Trump days, when things were getting pretty hairy in the midst of January 6th, in the midst of all the rhetoric that was going on about the Republican Party, he managed to be relatively neutral. Do we expect for his replacement to be able to stick that kind of landing? And do you think that that's an impressive feat at all that he should get credit for? I'll start with you, Emily. No, because I think at every opportunity he was uh, signaling the, you know, the, he, he wasn't, that's not to say, I, I, like basically I don't totally agree with the premise that he was maintaining neutrality throughout the Trump administration because I think he did take pretty much every opportunity he could to signify that he was not with the president. And, you know, he had fine reasons for that, I'm sure. But he, I, I just, the premise in and of itself, I don't totally agree with. But I think in the early part of the pandemic, if he had been able to like maintain that, I think sense of professionalism um, and just laser, at least the the appearance of being laser focused on policy and on the people, um, definitely I'd be willing to give him credit for that. But I feel like that just got too shaky um, after the first few months, and now we know he was telling um, all kinds of you know lies basically in that period too. Right, but the lies are separate and apart from kind of the political statements, right? So at one point, Fauci became upset because his words were perceived as being so glowing of Donald Trump that they were used in political ads. He said something along the lines of, it's hard to imagine anybody doing anything better. You know, I, it's very difficult for me to imagine any other Democrat in any senior position, in any elected office or appointed position, making that kind of statement that was even that accommodating of Donald Trump given how much negative sentiment there was about him at the in the last year of his presidency. Um, I, I, Rebecca, what do you think of that? Do you think it's likely that the next Fauci is going to be even that moderated in his tone? Do you think things have gotten better or worse since then? Um, well, in like I said, in that moment, Fauci coming into the limelight during a COVID-19 and nobody knowing about it and being, you know, the president's right hand man in that moment and being disrespected in front of the, you know, as a he's a leader in, in this in this science. He's a leader when it comes to diseases, but being disrespected by the president on air, um, I feel like, you know, who can take that in that, you know, in the public eye and everything, all the pressure is on you. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And how do you not choose a side after a while, you know, whether it's red or blue? I think that he stood his ground in that moment. But in the next Fauci, um, I hope that that person can stand their ground at all times. And sometimes it may look like you're choosing one side over the other. But I think that it should be more about right or wrong, giving the correct information, um, even when you give out something that's confusing, clarifying, that's what we're looking for in the next person who may take this position. And as far as them being seated in these positions for long, I do think it's power over money. And it also it's also something that's historical. We've seen this. A lot of times these people will sit here and stop doing the work when they get into an older age and just we will see them not doing much. And they're holding up, you know, this position that could be for someone else who can do a possibly better job, move a little quicker, uh, and get stuff done. So, mm. yeah. 
Well, Rebecca and Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. No problem. Next up, Texas Congressman Kevin Brady will join us to weigh in on the inflation question, the economy, and much more. Stick around. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, if you remember, last week, hashtag stop the treaty was trending. People were saying countries are about to give up their sovereignty to the WHO, meaning that we wouldn't be allowed to make a decision as a nation regarding our pandemic responses in the future so that we we would instead be beholden to global laws run by unelected officials. Now, last week was the World Health Assembly, the governing body of the WHO, composed of representatives from nearly every country in the world, gathered together in Geneva, Switzerland. And for a couple of days, they discussed proposed changes to the IHR, which is the International Health Regulations, that were proposed by the U.S. and other wealthy Western nations such as the U.K., Australia and whatnot. So. Uh, Just to explain a little bit more about the fear and what this IHR is. So the IHR is a set of agreed upon rules of how countries would behave during some sort of outbreak. This was actually drafted originally in 1970, and it's gone through several different phases of amendments. The most recent amendment and changes to the IHR was done in 2005. Now, pretty much every single country in the world is a part of the World Health Assembly. So every country in the world is beholden to these agreed upon rules of how countries will behave if there's some sort of public health crisis. Now, this is a legally binding document, but the document is not it's pretty soft in its language. So even if it is legally binding, as we saw in this pandemic with COVID-19, certain countries like China, for example, not exactly cooperating with investigations, nothing really happens to them. There's not any actual consequences. So as I discussed in a radar last week, the WHO proposed, as well as alongside some wealthy Western countries, to make some serious changes to that document to force countries to be a bit more beholden to some rules by maybe having some sort of police power that's given to the WHO. That would come in the form of sanctions or other sort of financial consequences if countries don't behave the way they're supposed to be behaving during a global pandemic or any other sort of health crisis. So a lot of people were against it saying, hey, you can't take away a country's sovereignty. If you do this and you say you're beholden to these rules that were made by unelected officials in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, and you're suddenly going to be beholden to this, you no longer have any control over your own population, over your own pandemic response. So it wasn't going over very well. So then the hashtag stop the treaty started trending all online. People saying we don't want to be beholden to what the WHO wants to do, which whoever this unelected czar is, we don't want them to decide what is going to be the right course of action in the next pandemic. Uh, Lockdowns, testing and tracing, uh, vaccine passports, the, the list could go on. Now, during this World Health Assembly last week, when they were discussing this IHR and the proposed amendments that were done by the U.S., by these Western countries, by the WHO, that would have given the WHO more power and and forced countries to be more beholden. The U.S. really drafted this in response to China not being very uh, cooperative during the investigation. Um, Things didn't go exactly as planned. It turns out, rather than having general consensus, which is pretty typical at the WHO, several countries actually voiced objections to the proposed amendments. In fact, Botswana read a statement on behalf of 47 African nations saying that they would collectively be withholding their support for the reforms. Brazil, Russia, 
China, India, South Africa, Iran, and Malaysia also voiced strong objections. Brazil in particular said they would actually exit the WHO altogether if these were adopted. Now, remember, South Africa, they're in this position where they felt pretty demonized for spotting a variant of the virus. They were then punished for that collectively by the rest of the world. So they understand very specifically what that police power would actually look like. They were subject to it informally. And now what the WHO wants to do, as well as these Western nations, is make that a bit more formal. Now, to explain, there was no actual vote. There's been some trending messages online saying that the stop the, that the treaty was actually defeated, that these countries voted against it. There actually was no vote during these sessions. These were just debates. People were voicing their their concerns. Countries were voicing their concerns. But ultimately, it forced the WHO to realize there wouldn't be consensus if they did go to their informal consensus style voting, which is how they make decisions. Now, if there is no consensus in the WHO, in, their, in the World Health Assembly, the WHA, actually, if there is no consensus, then they do go to a two-thirds majority voting process. Now, with 47 African countries, as well as many of the other nations, such as Russia, India, China, not going along with this, it's unclear if they would actually receive that two-thirds vote. So it's not over. The WHO decided they're going to go back to the drawing board and they're going to be revising the amendments. They have a new group who's going to be making what they're calling technical recommendations on the proposed amendments, which will be then resubmitted along with the pandemic treaty at the 77th Health Assembly meeting in 2024. So they're going to still continue on with this. This was not defeated. We will be hearing more about attempts to modify the IHR. Western countries will, of course, continue to go in there, try to modify it to their benefit by really sort of, um, it seems obvious that the goal of these Western countries is to target China, quite frankly. That is why they wrote up the amendments the way they did, is that they want to be able to punish China, go after China if China doesn't behave in future pandemics. Many viruses are first discovered in China, originate in China. Many of them also originate in India. It's because they have very, very large populations that are very condensed together. So it would be a way with these amendments and this new police power to the WHO to maybe go after China. Now, one thing I want to bring up that's kind of interesting is if you look at the list of countries who actually opposed these new amendments, many of them are very friendly to China. So this effort uh, very well could have been China on the back end going around to all of the countries that they've been very friendly with and saying, we don't want you to go along with this because we really know that this is just an attempt by Western, Western nations to have another tool in their toolbox to come after us at some point rather than actual warfare, right? We would sanction China and do all of these other sort of non-combat style of warfare that we do against other countries such as Iran and Venezuela. So when you look at that list, it's interesting that many of these countries oppose that those countries are the ones who are more, uh, who are closely aligned with China. The countries that were going along with it were the ones that are more uh, wary of a rising China. So that is interesting to, to consider in all of this. But one thing that's also really interesting is the fact that so many Republicans here in the United States, and Republicans are typically the ones who are very hawkish on China, but actually here in the US, it was Republicans who, in a way, without really knowing, sided with countries such as Russia, Iran, India, China, and those 47 African nations who are, who are very friendly with China. They, in a way, sided with those countries without realizing it because they've been proposing new le legislation here in the United States that would actually 
override any sort of treaty that the U.S. were to agree to at the global level. So that is something that's really interesting is that there's this now the Republicans sort of going along with this without realizing that China's also going along with this. I'm curious, Bree and Robbie, what your take is on that uh, with China being so as, as influential as it is in all of these other nations because of the investments, the very large investments they're doing in Africa, uh, the, the, the friendly relationship that they've been having with all of these countries that we as a nation have have demonized over the course of decades. We've gone after them in a variety of ways and that has pushed them towards China. And now it's interesting that Republicans were also very against this treaty. I mean, look, I'm against it too. I'm not a Republican, nor am I, you know, is, despite what some people might say online, you know, a, an activist for China or Russia or any of these. But you, the reasons for people, many people on the left in particular, screaming about this, saying this is horrible, we don't want this, is be, we don't want to agree to this, is because they'll say, you know, we don't want to have to give up our individual freedom to global elites uh, and people on the right are so on the right and left saying that coming from both sides more of an anti-establishment sentiment so yeah. what do you make of all of this well at first there was criticism i remember donald trump did criticize uh the world health organization for being too deferential to china for a little while i know pompeo did as well it's that figure um tedros as i believe his name yeah uh, you know, was accused of being too close to China. Now, more recently, he's been critical of China, and he actually criticized the Chinese uh, zero COVID policy. And that was his criticism of that was censored on the Chinese um, social media, uh, uh, the chat functions. Uh, so now, so it's. I think it's just. I think it's just shifting a little bit from the World Health Organization being maybe too deferential to China to now being finally a little bit um, opposed to them, and and maybe that helps explain why some of these people are ending up on different sides of this. But yeah, I, I agree with you. We don't want to. Uh, we don't want to be obligated to do anything. The World Health Organization, which you know, it's great. I think that they're criticizing the zero COVID policy right now because that policy is insane, and what China is doing is insane. But they could just as easily be under the thumb of China or any other government or our government. We've done things with the pandemic. There are, there are areas of the pandemic response where U.S. CDC policy was more insane than what the WHO was recommending. Hoarding vaccines that were going to go bad, not distributing them to other parts yeah. of the world, et cetera. Yeah, look, the posture of this is kind of interesting because from a Western perspective, the concern is that the World Health Organization is going to force some more draconian um, COVID protocols on the United States than the, you know, liberty-loving Americans are really for. But the idea that China is going to be used to control China is interesting, given that they do have a zero COVID policy, and they are probably much more um, uh, aggressive in their approach than what the World Health Organization would ultimately We were, too, on to mass. The, the World Health Organization did not recommend mass for, for children, for school children, nearly to the extent the same extent our own CDC did, uh, which was yeah. incredible. So, Robbie, you're saying we should go along with the World Health Organization and get more free? <laughs> but that, that was, there's one area where, right, the global elites were more sane than the local, the national elites. But I, in general, I agree with Kim that we got to be very skeptical about binding ourselves to kind of any of these dictates for exactly the, the reasons you outlined. I think it's important to, to also understand, or interesting, I should say, is that this is uh, this battle that's going on with this treaty is actually a battle of three different sides kind of happening all at once. And we're going to see who's the most powerful and who actually wins out on this. But on one hand, you've got, you know, China 
that uh, that maybe is uh, friendly with the WHO. After all, the WHO doesn't recognize Taiwan, right? We remember the whole when when the, the reporter mentioned Taiwan and the guy was like, I can't hear you. Got to go. Bye. Yeah, hung right. up on her. Yeah. Uh, ridiculous. So there, there is definitely a lot of influence from China on the WHO. So China also having influence on these other nations and saying, we don't want you to go along with this. And then those other nations saying, OK, then we're not. Um, so you've got that power kind of thing going on there. On the Western side, you have the West that, yes, China was much more aggressive in their in their lockdowns and whatnot. But the West, the reason why the West wants to implement these changes to the IHR is specifically so that they have the ability to sanction countries for this, for just another reason to sanction countries, to give mm-hmm. them another legitimate reason to sanction. So as we know, Western countries love to do that. And then the third player in all of this is, you know, the Bill Gates angle of this, which is he is actually the person who has a bit more sway, arguably, over the WHO than anybody else. And he does want more of the China style, um, you know, he's more of the China style measures and more of the we got to get more vaccines out there and all this. You know, he has his own agenda, but his agenda is a bit conflicting with, you know, China doesn't want. So it's interesting, these three players that are in on this. So Bill Gates would actually like to see these amendments made, but for different reasons in the United States than these Western uh, military countries. They want to use it as another war power. Bill Gates wants to use it as a because he has his agenda with global health and China doesn't want it, surprisingly. So it's it's interesting to see how this is all going to play out. So we'll be keeping Mm -hmm. our eye on this because this is not the last of it. They're going to be continuing to talk about this. Yes, we will. All right. Thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising right after this. Leah Thomas made headlines in March when she became the first openly transgender female to win in a double A Division I swimming event. Now one of Leah's teammates is saying winning feels, quote, tainted, and she's speaking out against the school, the University of Pennsylvania, for silencing Leah's critics. Here's what she told conservative political commentator Matt Walsh. The feeling of winning doesn't feel as good anymore because it feels tainted. There was a lot of things you couldn't talk about that were very concerning, like a locker room situation. If you even brought up concerns about it, you were transphobic. If you even bring up the fact that Leah swimming might not be fair, you were immediately shut down as being called a hateful person or transphobic. The teammate spoke on uh, spoke to Walsh on condition of anonymity for Walsh's new documentary, What is a Woman? I mean, I, I don't think we're surprised that there was a lot of backlash that there was uh, or that there was a lot of, I would say, um, suppression of any sort of, you know, concerns. I think that I think that was pretty expected that there was that going on, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> public opinion is pretty universal as well on this. And it, so it's not surprising they feel this way on the team you know, that and, and, you know, people who have had to swim against. Leah Thomas and just people generally think that, you know, no, uh, or at least from my perspective, no, I don't mean any, you know, maliciousness toward uh, trans women or trans people. I, I think this this help you know, trans people exist and, you know, should be allowed uh, to to go through this procedure and, and, and are entitled to whatever, to, to all the same dignity and rights as everybody else. But that in this very specific case, if we're talking just narrowly about the field of athletic competition, it's just it's myopic to think that there isn't 
an unfair advantage being conferred here at the levels of elite competition. Um, yeah, well, what, what else can you say? It's just clearly true. I haven't followed this issue as closely as others. I'm, you know, a left populist who's primarily concerned with the millions of Americans who can't afford food and are facing really high prices at the gas tank. You and say I, that with a certain amount of contempt. Well, yeah, because I, I care think it's, about this instead. Look, of no, that. not that pe people can care about this, but I do think that it's important to point out how these stories are weaponized to distract from the fact that the totally. GOP has little to nothing to offer to Americans outside of these kind of cultural fights. But look, I think the fundamental issue is that as a society, there was a decision made many hundreds and thousands of years ago to bifurcate uh, women's and men's sports because of an understanding that there are biological differences there, you know, in, in people's performance ability, muscle capacity, and all of those things. And the reason was to give, you know, women assigned at birth competitors uh, an ability to compete and win and not have to always go against men assigned at birth. And I believe my understanding is that in the Olympic context, there are certain parameters that trans comp competitors have to go through in terms of how long do you have to have been uh, transitioning? Are your hormone levels comparable to you know the gender assigned at birth people that you are competing against and all those kinds of things? And it seems to have been largely resolved and less of an issue there. I'm not sure what's going on in the Leah Thompson case. There are people who feel both ways on her team, obviously. I'm not sure what the comments about um, changing rooms are all about. I'm sure, I mean, there are in all likelihood lesbian members of the team. The idea of there being like sexual attraction in the locker room, I think, is a kind of a nothing burger. But, you know, ultimately, I yeah. don't think this is going, uh, going anywhere because I do think we have to grapple with that underlying choice that society made to have this bifurcation in the sports world that is based on some acknowledged differences physically between people who are born assigned at birth male versus women based on the literal differences between men and women there are just there are di there just are differences it's not it, this is not the, the gender gets compared to race all the time look there are not fundamental differences between the races the way there actually are differences between men and women yeah. there are some just there's just truth to that that there's differences in preferences that are not totally that cannot completely be explained by you know, sociological, uh, I, I cut you off, Kim, what were you gonna say? No, I was just gonna say that, you know, I, I agree that this is uh, one of those battles that I think it's just blown way, way out of proportion. Though I do think that the Leah Thomas case, I agree, I don't think that she should be competing. I was a, I was a swimmer myself my entire life. Uh, and and so I, I don't think that she should be competing against the women in, I mean, she competed as a man for three years on the men's team and then suddenly set and, and unsuccessfully, fairly unsuccessfully. It's still very, very impressive as an intercollegiate swimmer to make an NCAA team, Division One man, right. even if you're losing every single swim meet. But nonetheless, um, shouldn't be competing with the women. But I do think that this is a blown way out of proportion. I, I mean, we don't see really that. This isn't actually affecting everybody's life. I mean, how many trans people do you actually know? How many trans people do you know who are then trying to do things such as compete against you in some sort of sport? Right. I mean, this is like such a tiny, tiny group of it people is a that very this is actually small affecting. Number of people. Tiny. I mean, hardly right. anybody is actually affected by this. But this is blown way out of proportion into some giant cultural war issue that is being used as a distraction. And where I disagree with you, Breeze, I don't think it's just the Republicans because they have nothing to offer. I think neither side has anything to offer. They lie to the American people all the time. That's true. And the flip side is the Democrats they, both use all the flag it. waving and I, we love these 
these groups as the, right. the counter. And, you know, I personally think that we should love those groups, but that's also not a policy prescription to actually help those groups that Democrats like to give a lot of lip service to saying they love and support and right. care about. So. And I don't think we should malign. Again, she deserves all the respect and human dignity. I, I don't, whatever, bathroom stuff is really always, I think, very stupid. Uh, you know, it, it is not, I, I don't want to malign her at all. It's, we're just talking narrowly about whether someone who has that, had this experience, is it fair for them to compete against right. um, other, other women? In, and it's clearly not. It's just clearly not. And that's right. just reality. And I think it feels like most everybody is in agreement with that. But for whatever reason, and kind yeah. of what this interview is showing is that actually not everybody. I mean, here we yeah. are. We're talking. We all agree with that. And many people agree with that. Yeah. But what's up with the school? Why is the school saying, don't, right. you know, hush, hush, don't say that. Because they're beholden you know, to liberal activists. <laughs> That's what I would yeah, say. So that's that's the question. Well, well so yeah, in an interview with ABC News, uh, Thomas doubled down on competing as a trans woman. Let's watch that. I knew there would be scrutiny against me if I uh, competed as a woman. Um, I was prepared for that, but I also don't need anybody's permission to be um, myself and to, to do the sport that I love. Well, you don't need anybody's permission to be yourself. I, you know, I... I don't think that there's be you do whatever you want to do yes, absolutely. in that regard. But there are things that you, you should not then. I mean, you have to. Unfortunately, life is filled with tough choices. And to me, this is one of those tough decisions. Do you want to continue competing as a swimmer at an intercollegiate level, in which case then do so on the men's team as you were for three years? Or do you want to transition because that that's helping you in a variety of other in, ways? If that is what you need to do, then do that. But unfortunately, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. And right. that is you cannot compete in that way anymore. I mean, that's but we do live, I feel like, in a generation of people that just want to have their cake and eat it, too. And I know every generation says that about the younger groups. So I sound like an old fogey, but that and it just sounds like that's how what's happening here. Like, why not? Why can't I, I? I agree with you completely. I think what's unfortunate is that so much of this conversation does get turned to non-competitive sports. And, you know, I think it's much less of an issue when there's not prize money or scholarships and things like that at play. And we're talking about, you know, some kid in high school who's being forced to play in one team or another or use a certain kind of locker room that they're not comfortable with and things like that. And it is kind of unfortunate that these niche cases where I do think there's a legitimate are, you know, discussions to be had about how someone like Leah Thomas is affecting people's kind of settled expectations with, uh, with respect to scholarship access and prize money and stuff like that, you know, that that conversation ends up trickling down and having these negative effects on kids that are just trying to compete in a, in a, in a context that literally costs nobody anything. I mean, I guess, but even at the, the less competitive level, I mean, the difference in athletic ability between men and women, it, it, it bifurcates like real quickly, uh, depending okay, on exactly but I'm what the sport pretty is. Pretty sure I and... can take you in a foot race, Robbie. Oh, 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 oh we've got we've got a challenge on our hands. Uh, I'm certain I'm certain that you uh, that you could you you're always uh, uh, shaming me for my unhealthy ways. Mike, I'm, I'm over here dying in the chair. You're ready to go. I have no doubt uh, that uh, that you would beat me. I, I used to be fast, not anymore. Alas, in my old age. Uh. You're like three years younger than me. <laughs> You're both very young. You're both very young. 
All right, we're we're gonna do the we're gonna do the uh, with the rising Olympics uh, sometime. <laughs> I, I, who wants to bet like Emily Jashinsky beats us at everything that's, or that's something? That's probably yeah, right. We'll find Ryan? out she's like a professional javelin. <laughs> no one's gonna put any money on Ryan. I, I I actually think I think it would be Ryan that wins everything. He's a real competitive guy. I think it would be Ryan. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to set this up for, uh, for at some point, uh, <laughs> Rising Olympics. Okay, tomorrow, speaking of, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, they will be here for Rising Fridays, mm-hmm. delivering you the news, not engaged in athletic competition, <laughs> sadly, but you never know. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, specifically, they are going to provide a deep dive into the failed Durham probe, as well as new developments in Pakistan and Yemen. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, guys. Thanks for watching. We will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.